0: The history of interactions between the United States and the African continent is a complicated one, to say the least. On my podcast, The Presidencies of the United States, we examine how the various presidential administrations from 1789 onward, for better or worse, approached both domestic policy and foreign affairs. I work to dispel some of the misconceptions that have grown up around the institution and better understand the people and events that make up the history of the American presidency. The Presidencies of the United States can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and anywhere else fine podcasts can be found. Or you can go to the website at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, dot com. I hope you'll take some time after you finish this episode to join me on my journey through the annals of the past. Thanks so much. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we observed the Ashantahane Kwakojoa successfully repair the damage inflicted on Ashanti governmental institutions by his predecessor. For the three decades since he assumed control over the Golden Stool, Kwakojoa managed to reinvigorate the Ashanti economy through a levying of gargantuan, unpopular, estate taxes. The revenue from which was used to fuel a large-scale debt relief program for the empire's peasantry and the importation of massive amounts of currency to counter deflation. To implement these unpopular but necessary policies, Kwakojoa assumed an ever-greater degree of dictatorial power and military control over Ashanti civic life. In this episode, we'll see Kwakojoa put the Ashanti army to use for its intended purpose, as a minor dispute with the British colonial authorities to their south escalates into outright warfare. Season 3, Episode 20, The Second Anglo-Ashanti War. When we resume our story in 1860... The status quo of Anglo-Ashanti relations had changed little since the last time the empires had met in battle. In the years following the Ashanti defeat at Katamansal, the British and Ashanti essentially divided Ghana along the flow of the Pra River and its tributary, the Birim. The northern bank of the rivers and everything beyond was to be the undisputed domain of the Hene, while everything south of the river was controlled by states under British protectorate status. This riparian border seems, at first glance, like it should be pretty stable and easy to regulate. There's no way to dispute where the river is, so both sides should theoretically always be on the same page about who owns what, right? And, with most rivers around the world, this would be true. But the unique geography of the Prah and Birim rivers made sure that no easy agreement could materialize. While the Prah has a fairly conventional shape, flowing in a gentle southwestern direction into the ocean, the Birim has a more unusual flow. The river, whose source is located just south of the Prah, flows east, then north, then loops back around to the south and west again, where it joins the Pra to form a peculiar riverine peninsula. So, this demands the question, did the original agreement with the British afford the Ashanti control over everything north of the Birim's southern loop, or everything north of its northern bank? This might sound like semantics, but we're talking about the control over hundreds of square kilometers of territory here. Not to mention, the Prah and Birim did not exactly go on forever, and cover most, but not all, of the regions where the Ashanti and British influence meet. In these regions east of the rivers, where do each party's influence end and begin? These questions were made more confusing by the lack of any formal written agreement. Remember, the British and Ashanti were both reluctant to sign any official documents to conclude the First Anglo-Ashanti War. Neither side wanted to permanently end the question of the extension of their own sovereignty. Nor did the British want to officially announce to their Denshira and Achim allies that they were conceding Ashanti ownership over a great deal of their allies' territory. So, neither side could point to the wording on a piece of paper to support their claims. Honestly, when you consider how fragile this agreement really was, it's impressive that peace between the British and Ashanti lasted as long as it did. Yes, it was an uneasy peace. The Ashanti feared British intervention during numerous occasions, especially during the crisis of the people of Juaben moving into Achim, and even mobilized for war. The British were equally paranoid, sending divisions to coastal Ghana on multiple occasions when they feared an Ashanti invasion. But, at the end of the day, an uneasy peace was, well, peace. The successful maintenance of peace between the two empires is largely due to the somewhat pacifistic foreign policy of Kwako Joa. Remember, throughout his reign, Kwako Joa has dedicated most of his efforts to reforming and stabilizing his empire's economic and civic systems. Despite rising to power primarily on his military acumen in the first place, the only wars that Kwakojoa waged involved crushing rebellions, not any wars of expansion. The British, similarly, were not really eager to wage war in Ghana either. To briefly recap their presence in coastal Ghana, the British government annexed the company of African merchants in 1821 due to its flailing profit margins in the aftermath of the abolition of the slave trade and its notorious willingness to violate British anti-slave trade laws. Following the First Anglo-Ashanti War, the British obtained full sovereignty over their own coastal fort, while also bringing the neighboring Fanti Confederation and several other coastal kingdoms under an informal protectorate status. The Fanti and their neighbors continued to exist as a separate state, and possessed local autonomy to pass laws. But, in terms of foreign policy... Their autonomy was largely reduced to listening to whatever the British said was going to happen, and then doing it, in exchange for promises of British military protection from any future Ashanti invasions. Throughout this period, the British had relied almost entirely on the locals to provide the bulk of the manpower for any potential war with the Ashanti. However, things began to change in 1834. That year, the British Parliament in London formally called for the abolition of the institution of slavery altogether. The millions of enslaved Africans in the British colonial empire were now slated for emancipation. The process, in order to avoid earning the ire of colonial slave owners, was made gradual, with a waiting period of six years, and with slave owners receiving compensation for their so-called loss of property. But it did happen. By 1840, slavery was now legally a thing of the past in the British empire. The abolition of slavery in the British empire would have enormous long-term ramifications for Ghana, These ramifications are rooted in the ideology of racialism. You see, in the 19th century, European academia was dominated by an ideology called racialism. Racialism is not exactly the same thing as its more infamous cousin, racism, but the two are closely linked. Racialist ideology posits that people from around the world, including people of African and European descent are so immensely distinct in terms of biology that they should be classified as distinct biological races. This idea, of course, has since been thoroughly discredited by thousands of genomic studies which show that racial categories are largely superficial and arbitrary, and possess little basis in actual genetic or anatomical study. However, racialism remained dominant in European academia well into the 20th century. As a result, in 1840, European academia believed that it was simply impossible for a race like Europeans to survive in tropical Africa, which they labeled as the white man's graveyard, and it is true that the rate of deaths caused by tropical disease were tremendously high in European coastal forts in tropical Africa. However, in retrospect, we know that this was more due to their tendency to be built near mosquito breeding pits, and that many coastal African societies possessed medical techniques that were better accustomed to treating tropical diseases. But this context was lost on European academia at the time. It was chalked up to a matter of race, that African, or black people, were just naturally more resistant to tropical disease. In previous decades, the British Empire did not exactly have access to large pools of manpower from African-descended peoples. Yes, there was a small population of free black people in the empire. With emancipation, however, there were now entire islands in the Caribbean full of African-descended people who due to their recent enslavement, had little money and were eager to accept any position that could win social and economic advancement. So Caribbean recruitment into the military soared. Now, the British did have access to a large pool of military manpower who they believed to be viable for service in tropical Africa. The status quo of Anglo-Ashanti relations began to shift in 1844. That year, due to the swelling British military presence in the region, Local kings felt more confident in depending on the British for military protection. Confident in this new structure, the colonial governor of Sierra Leone signed an agreement with 17 Fanti, Denchira, and Ga kings. Known as the Bond of 1844, this treaty formalized these kings' status as British protectorates, while also giving British soldiers the right to enforce trade duties on their allied kingdoms. It also gave the colonial government the power to mediate disputes between protectorate kings, and established a shared parliament for the local kings to create and debate legislation that would affect the entire British sphere of influence in coastal West Africa. These reforms succeeded not only in increasing British influence in southern Ghana, but also transformed the British presence from a vague patchwork of allies into a cohesive colonial government. In 1850, confident in this new colonial structure... The British Parliament agreed to release the coast of Ghana from the stewardship of the Sierra Leone colony for the first time, creating a separate colonial administration christened as the British Gold Coast. That same year, the British also made their first step, which began a long series of decisions which would eventually provoke the Second Anglo-Ashanti War. In 1850, the British government reached a deal with the government of Denmark. Since their own abolition of the slave trade, Denmark's colonies in West Africa had proven increasingly unprofitable. So, in exchange for a handsome sum of money, the Danish cut their losses and surrendered control over their zone of influence to the British. To Kwako Joa, this was an outrage. For starters, the British had not consulted him at all before the purchase. And, of course they didn't, because he surely would have objected to it. Since the end of the First Anglo-Ashanti War, Ashanti's strategy on the coast had revolved around the idea of playing multiple European parties off of each other since as long as anyone could remember, there had been at least three European companies on the coast, the British, Dutch, and Danish. This had resulted in a stable balance of power, where the Dutch backed the Ashanti, the British aligned with the Fanti, and the Danish remained neutral. With the Danish now out of Ghana, this balance was disrupted. Not to mention, the British now held control over much of southeastern Ghana, including two-thirds of the ever-important trading city of Accra. Sure, the treaty that ended the First Anglo-Ashanti War had guaranteed Ashanti merchants free access through British-aligned territories. But what if the British just decided to, you know, violate that agreement? It was, by design, informal. So what was to stop the British from just declaring, actually, your merchants now can't access two-thirds of the Gold Coast? If the 1831 agreement failed, so too would much of the Ashanti economy. Not to mention that the Ashanti's greatest trading partner, the Dutch, was now partially cut off from the Ashanti. Apart from one road that connected the Dutch-controlled Ahanta region to Komasi, the British sphere of influence in Ghana now enveloped much of the Dutch zone of influence. So if war broke out, the Ashanti would lose much of their access to their largest arms supplier. That was bad. Very bad. But here's the conundrum. The Ashanti economy was still barely emerging from an economic depression in 1850. While the potential threat of the British closing their roads to Ashanti merchants could be potentially disastrous, commencing hostilities with the British colonial government would only ensure that this became a reality. If this happened, all of Kwakojoa's policies to right the Ashanti economy would be for nothing. Not to mention, the Ashanti Hane was still rightly concerned about the stability of the Ashanti state should war break out not only would the economy implode, but the military would have to focus its efforts on fighting a war in the south. Given Kwakojoa's unpopularity among Ashanti elites, the lack of an immediate military threats to keep these elites in line could ensure his downfall. So, despite posing a ticking time bomb for the Ashanti, Kwakojoa was reluctantly forced to accept the British purchase of the Danish Gold Coast. Over the next three years, British control in the south of Ghana continued to expand. Despite the colony's growing stability and territorial extent, its profits remained unimpressive. To generate more income, the British governor levied taxes on foreign trade for the first time in 1852, though exempting Ashanti merchants, with the tepid consent of the Council of Kings. When the tax did little to impact colonial financial fortunes, in the late months of the same year, the British governor decided to pass an incredibly controversial head tax, That is, a universal tax applied to every single adult living in the state. This tax sparked incalculable resistance from the inhabitants of the Protectorate Kingdoms, especially those in the recently integrated territories. Not only did they now have to pay two sets of taxes, one to the British and one to their local king, but those from the former Danish territories, whose kings weren't among the 17 represented in the parliament, had no say in the matter. In 1853, the kings of the eastern coast rose up in revolt against the British administration. In a few skirmishes with British troops, they emerged victorious, and soon many local kings, even some of whom had initially agreed to the tax, joined the revolt. Surprisingly, the revolt was successful. The British were forced to retreat back to their coastal forts. However, these rebellious kings were not trying to break away from British sovereignty. No, the threat of Ashanti invasion loomed too large for that. Rather, they simply wanted to repeal the tax and reassert their own autonomy. With the nascent Gold Coast colony on fire, the British government demanded a change in strategy. Helping this shakeup was a change in British politics. While it's outside the purview of our podcast, TLDR, a new party in Britain called the Liberals, formed, and for the first time in 1860, they won control of the national government. Along with this change in parties came a change in colonial governance. A new Secretary of State for the colonies was appointed. One, Henry Pelham Clinton. Clinton, an experienced statesman, had a strange position in the British government. He was an opponent of colonialism not for moral reasons, but rather for pragmatism, as he thought that colonies were more expensive and difficult to maintain than they're worth. This was especially true for the Gold Coast, with its constant rebellions and ever-increasing demands for garrisons. Prior to his rise to the Secretary position, he frequently stated that, if up to him, he would abandon the West African forts altogether. But upon assuming the position of Colonial Secretary, he didn't. His most adamant rationalization relied on a series of developments in the Western Hemisphere, namely the brewing civil war in the United States and the continued slave trading in Brazil. While Brazil had technically abolished their participation in the slave trade in 1831, this law was loosely enforced. In reality, Brazilian slave merchants continued to be the most notorious illegal slave smugglers in the world, and the government did nothing to cease their activities. Meanwhile, the brewing American Civil War also threatened to reinvigorate slave trading. The Separatist Nation, the Confederate States of America, was defined by its commitment to the continuation of the institution of slavery. It was widely feared that, should the Confederates win independence such a state would be like Brazil and not properly enforce its bans on international slave trading. And if we look at the statistics, Clinton was right to fear a resurgence in the transatlantic slave trade. The Atlantic slave trade, despite nearly two decades of decline, had suddenly resurged in the late 1850s, escalating from 7,300 people trafficked in 1855 to a terrifying sevenfold increase in 1859. Clinton, considered a progressive at the time was genuinely principled in his opposition to slavery and the slave trade. Unlike previous British colonial ministers, all accounts, even those from the most rigidly anti-colonial scholars, admit that Clinton didn't see stopping the slave trade as a cynical excuse to capture the ships of rivals or expand territory in Africa, but as a genuine humanitarian mission. So, despite his misgivings, Clinton decided to maintain the British presence in southern Ghana to wall out Brazilian and, potentially, Confederate slave smugglers. As he stated in a private correspondence, We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out, through expert interviews and captivating stories. Listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. We have done or attempted to do too much or too little in the Gold Coast. I do not, however, think it possible to recede. The attempt now making by foreign nations to revive the slave trade would, if no other considerations interfered, render abandonments of our position on the coast impossible. For the Ashanti, the British failure to put down the 1853 rebellion was a clear sign of vulnerability. Obviously, if the British could be defeated by a group of ragtag petty kings and their militias, they would be no match for the Ashanti's disciplined army of professionals. Not to mention, by 1860, the economic state of the Ashanti Empire had improved considerably. Perhaps, even with the British closure of trade, the Ashanti economy could survive long enough for the Ashanti to win a war against the encroaching British. So, by 1860, war against the British didn't seem like a suicidal option anymore. In Kwaku opinion, it was still not an option worth pursuing, but it was now a viable option, nonetheless. But, it would not be the rebellion against the British that sparked the war with the Ashanti. The rebellion quietly succeeded, and in 1861, the hated head tax was repealed. What actually sparked the Second Anglo-Ashanti War was, believe it or not, a minor case of tax fraud. The central figure of the coming controversy was a minor Omanhene by the name of Kwasijiane. The Omanhene of a small village named Bare, 22 kilometers south of Komasi, Gianni was the last person you would expect to provoke an international incident. While his exact age in 1862 was unknown, he was likely in his late 60s or early 70s, and had served in his position for a very long time. But everything began to go off the rails when an Ashanti soldier discovered a large gold nugget that Gianni kept in his residence. Ashanti law dictated that every omanhene must report every bit of gold and surrender it to the central government. This was one of the main sources of revenue for the Ashanti state. And, given how many expensive policies the king had recently decided to pursue, penalties for essentially embezzling state funds were harsh. The death penalty would be the likely outcome in any era, but under the notoriously legalistic Kwakojoa, well, Yam was cooked. So, he didn't stick around and decided to book it south before the book came down on him. Along the way, he met a young Domom, or enslaved person captured in war, who had escaped from the estate that he worked on. The two continued their journey and eventually made it across the Pra River into British territory. If Johnny's execution hadn't been certain already, his aiding of an escaped slave was just further sealing his fate if the Ashanti government ever caught up to him. Once he had reached British custody, he was soon followed by an Ashanti diplomatic party. The diplomats informed the British governor of Gianni's crimes and demanded his immediate return to Ashantiman. The governor declined, but noted that he would wait for an official response from Clinton. The Ashanti diplomats, disappointed by what they had probably expected to be an easy extradition, returned to Komasi. Joea, however, still wanted to resolve matters peacefully. Yes, Ashanti prospects in the war now seem less self-destructive, but waging war is still always risky. So he revised his offer. Swearing the strongest Ashanti oath, Kwakojoa promised that he would commute both of the fugitives' sentence to a large fine should they be returned to Komasi. Clinton did not believe this oath to be honest, so his response arrived in early 1863. No, the British would not extradite the fugitives. Now, at initial glance, this might not seem like such a big deal. I mean, a minor official and a runaway slave are not worth fighting an entire war over, right? But this refusal to extradite meant so much more than that. Remember, one of the stipulations of the 1831 agreement was that the British would return any and all fugitive criminals to the Ashanti. So, if the British were willing to break that treaty stipulation, who's going to stop them from breaking the other stipulations, like, say, free Ashanti mercantile access to the coast? To Kwakojoa, this was a clear signal that the British were not willing to respect the stipulations of their treaty. Combine that with the apparent British weakness in their protectorate, and the recent surge of expansionism, and you have the making for imminent war. With war now seemingly inevitable, Kwakojoa's army began to prepare for the coming onslaught. The army aligned on the bank of the Pra River in three columns. Kwakojoa's estimation was that the British would focus their attacks west, in an effort to cut off the Ashanti from their Dutch suppliers. So, he assigned one army to march southwest to secure Lassaman, ensuring a stable supply line between the Ashanti and their Dutch allies in Ahanta. Another column was to also align in the southwest, but then march directly towards the colonial capital at Cape Coast. The final and largest column would invade and occupy the disputed Achim territories in the Pra River Bend. Kwakojoa was expecting to delay the war for several more months, allowing his army to better situate and supply itself before battle commenced. The British, on the other hand, struggled right from the start. Their commander, a man by the name of Cochrane, was infamous for his tepid strategy and struggles to mobilize. To the Fati and Achen people, this war was a potentially devastating threat. If the Ashanti invasion succeeded, it was their towns that would be ravaged. It was their people who would be captured as slaves. It was their livelihoods under threat. But, feeling no urgency for himself, Cochrane dawdled and dragged his feet mobilizing his own units at a slow pace and keeping Fonti elites out of much of the decision-making. At one point, one Asafo company's leader decided that he had enough of the British lollygagging and acted independently. With war not yet formally declared, the Asafo marched northwest and began skirmishing with one of the mobilizing Ashanti columns. Believing that this meant that war had started, the column hastily readied its men for combat and marched forward, routing the Asafo unit with ease. Hearing news of the premature invasion, Kwakojoa orders other units to scramble together and advance. Despite the improvised nature of the Ashanti's invasion, they enjoyed immediate and considerable success. While the Ashanti had not fully prepared, they were far better prepared than their enemies. Wasaman was secured without much fighting, while the second column progressed steadily towards Cape Coast. The Pra River Bend, which was expected to host the most intense fighting, fell with minimal resistance, defended only by a small series of local militias. So, with their main objectives already seized, the Ashanti columns continued to march south, crossing the Biram River and capturing the town of Achimoda unimpeded. With the capture of this town, the Ashanti were now in an incredibly favorable position. Achimoda was due north of the midway point between Accra and Cape Coast. If the Ashanti marched any further south, they could thread the needle between these two cities, and divide the British and Fanti armies in twain. So, Cochrane decided that they could allow the Ashanti to advance no further. Accompanied by two Asafos, the Royal African Corps camped out at the town of Asikoma, or 27 miles south of Achimoda. However, they underestimated the Ashanti's mobility, expecting that there was no realistic chance that the Ashanti could meet them in battle until the following evening. They were wrong. The next morning, the Ashanti army arrived at Asekoma. The British and Fanti, unprepared and caught in a disadvantageous position, were forced to quickly retreat south. With the Ashanti in hot pursuit, the British were forced to make a costly tactical decision. Rather than risking a potentially disastrous defeat if his army was caught from behind by the pursuing Ashanti, Cochrane ordered a few hundred RAC soldiers to stay behind and make a defensive stand against the Ashanti at a small village called Bobikoma. They were doomed to lose, but they would hold off the Ashanti long enough that the rest of the army could safely retreat. And hopefully most of them would escape too. The plan succeeded, partially. The Ashanti army crushed the force at Babaykoma with astonishing speed. The battle lasted all of three hours, with no British or Fanti survivors. The rest of the British and Fanti forces, though, managed to make it back to Cape Coast, but still suffered harassment from Ashanti scouts. With the British now unable to contest Ashanti control over parts of southern Ghana, the Ashanti army proceeded to ravage the territories of their enemies. The houses of Fonti elites were stripped of any valuables within, while many Fonti civilians were captured and enslaved. These last decades had been the worst-case scenario for the Fonti. They had surrendered much of their sovereignty and rights to the British in exchange for protection, and the British didn't deliver. Outraged at Cochrane's failure, the colonial governor relieved him of duty and prepared to lead a counterattack himself. In Cape Coast, the British received reinforcements from the Caribbean and Sierra Leone. Combined with the remainder of Cochrane's forces, they numbered a little over 8,000. Right when it seemed that the British and Ashanti were preparing for a final climactic fight, everything came to a standstill. Outbreaks of yellow fever, dysentery, and malaria ravaged both armies. Even the British governor himself caught the disease, and was incapacitated in a near-comatose state for months. Meanwhile, the Ashanti, also suffering intense attrition from disease, withdrew back across the Birim to treat and quarantine the outbreaks. Despite the early Ashanti victories, by late 1863, the Ashanti and British were mostly back to where they had started, Ashanti occupation of the Pra Bend notwithstanding. After six months of epidemic-caused stalemate, the coast of Ghana was in a state of crisis. Disease was everywhere. Entire towns and cities were abandoned. Fonti Confidence on the British Protectorate was non-existent. Desperate to rejuvenate any support among the locals, the British government called for even more reinforcements, aiming to launch a counterattack and retake the Prah Bend. In January of 1864, the promised reinforcements arrived. The British set up a base at Prasso, a small village just to the south of the Prah Bend. On the other side, Ashanti soldiers set up defensive positions and Palisades. Both sides exchanged volleys of gunfire for weeks from defensive positions, rarely hitting their target, but with neither side able to cross the river. Meanwhile, the true victors of this conflict, yellow fever and malaria, continued to ravage both sides. The Second Anglo-Ashanti War had devolved from a one-sided rout during its opening months into an apocalyptic war of attrition. As 1864 came to a close, it became clear to everybody involved that this war would not produce a true winner. Fortunately, Kwakojoa's early efforts to secure a stable supply line between the Ashanti and Dutch paid off, and the disastrous economic decline that many had feared would come with the war never materialized. But for how much longer could the Ashanti army stay in the field before political instability became a real hazard? And, not to mention, The never-ending battle at Prasu continued to gluttonously consume ammunition, powder, and most worryingly of all, men. Something would have to give. But luckily for Kwakojoa, the British gave first. If the Second Anglo-Ashanti War had taken a toll on the Ashanti, it had done so tenfold to the British and their allies. The war was growing increasingly expensive. While the Ashanti only had to ship supplies from Kumasi to Prasu, the British had to sail supplies thousands of miles then further struggled to make use of the poor infrastructure in southern Fantaman, far inferior in engineering to the Ashanti's roads. Human costs were even greater. Of the entire British expeditionary force sent to Ghana, more than half, yes, an entire half of its officers had perished. A sixth of the British force altogether met a similar fate, while an unknown but presumably large number of Fantis also met their end. While the Ashanti had struggled to deal with disease outbreaks, they were actually equipped to handle it. Most Ashanti soldiers had been inoculated against the disease they faced, so their recovery rate dwarfed that of British soldiers. Not to mention, Ashanti medical knowledge was better equipped for handling infectious disease. Ashanti medics regularly cleaned medical instruments with alcohol, using boiling water to sanitize infected encampments, and quarantined infected soldiers. I talked a bit about how impressive Akan medical techniques were by the standards of the time in a premium episode a while back, with a well-developed model of germ theory that informed Ashanti physicians. Meanwhile, in Britain, germ theory was still considered a fringe idea. A British physician had demonstrated the veracity of germ theory back in 1854, but the idea didn't find mainstream acceptance until the early 1880s. British society at large still believed in miasma theory, which postulated that bad vapors from corpses and swamps were the cause of disease. The British Fanti allies, who, like the Ashanti, were aware of germ theory, tried to improve the sanitation of British camps, only to be reprimanded or ignored. Not to mention, remember, many British officers continued to believe, even as outbreaks spread among their ranks, that the African ancestry of their Caribbean soldiers would protect them against tropical disease. Even with their greater population and global empire, the British were losing the War of Attrition. By April, the epidemics had become so bad that the British were forced to call off their attack and Praso was abandoned altogether. Four days later, the British recalled their troops from Ghana in humiliating fashion, cementing the Second Anglo-Ashanti War as an unequivocal Ashanti victory. The fugitives, whose escape had provoked this war in the first place, were surrendered to meet fates unknown to history, and a new agreement was forged between the British and Ashanti. This new agreement curbed the decades-long trend of encroaching British influence on the Ghanaian coast it reaffirmed the British responsibility to return any and all fugitives from the Ashanti Empire to Ashanti authorities, and, of course, reaffirmed unimpeded Ashanti mercantile access to the coast. But, most radically, it almost repealed the protectorate status over the southern coast. While the Fanti, Ga, and other southern people remained British protectorates on paper, the British openly announced that the disastrous outcome of the Second Anglo-Ashanti War meant that in future wars, the Fanti and Ga would be on their own. This decision incited mass unrest in southern Ghana, provoking a straight-up revolution. Yes, a real revolution, with the bourgeoisie class of the Fanti overthrowing their local kings and everything in 1868. The Fanti Revolution, sometimes also called the Comprador Uprising, and the confederative state it created, is a fascinating topic, and will form the subject of our next premium episode. If you'd like to hear more about this revolution on the Ghanaian coast in 1868, or listen to the other dozens of premium episodes we've created, or if you'd just like to support the show, then please go ahead and pledge your support on patreon.com historyofafrica. And to those already supporting the show, thank you. The Ashantahane Kwakojoa I passed away shortly after his victory over the British, at a respectable 70 years old. Occupying the Golden Stool for an impressive 33 years, his reign was the longest Ashanti kingship we've seen on the show so far just barely surpassing the 32-year-long reign of Opokoware. If you examined Kwakojoa's rule in a vacuum, without the context of what happens after his death, it would be tempting to declare him the greatest Ashantehane of all time. Did Kwakojoa leave the empire in a better state than when he inherited it? Well, he inherited an empire ravaged by mismanagement by an incompetent predecessor, marred by economic ruin and civic instability and rapidly losing control over its peripheral territories. By the end of his rule, the empire's economy was largely healthy again, and its army had even triumphed over their most powerful foe. Clearly, an enormous success, right? But, well, we can't view Kwakojoa's rule in a vacuum. While Kwakojoa inarguably proved effective at stabilizing his empire and its economy, hindsight tells us that the stability he created was a mirage. And that the force of his personality allowed the empire to persist despite its stability teetering on the precipice of collapse. While his reign brought peace, more so than any previous king, Kwako Joa eroded the institutions designed to preserve Ashanti long-term stability. The power of the Kotoko Council and the Ashanti Parliaments weakened more under Kwako Joa's eye than any other administration. Is this entirely his fault? Well, no, you could argue that some of the reforms that he passed through bypassing these institutions were necessary for the preservation of the empire. But it eroded these institutions nonetheless. And, as we'll see, those institutions existed for good reason. Balancing a country's stability on the base of your personal power can bring short-term peace, but no personality lasts forever. What happens when that base of power collapses? The answer, as we'll see... Is disaster. Join us next episode as the Ashanti Empire experiences a deadly massacre in its capital city. While the dangerous trend of succession disputes once again raises its ugly head. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then we would love it if you could support the show. You can do this through supporting us monetarily at patreon.com/slash history of Africa, providing the show with a rating or a view on whichever platform you listen on or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Kevin Johnson, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Penza, Tobias Tungland, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, Bibi Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, and Travis Bell, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.